beautiful music. Speaking of which, did you know that you can hear The Humble Farmer here on your very own WEIU every Saturday afternoon from 5 until 6? Thank you for listening. I read that in a recent year in Columbia, Maine, every man, woman, and child spent an average of more than $805 on lottery tickets. It came to $229,000 worth of lottery tickets in just one small store. Think how many calories 229,000 would buy in fries, hamburgers, bottles of beer, and potato chips. I think the citizens of Columbia should get a bronze plaque from the Department of Health for spending more than any town in Maine to combat alcoholism and obesity. Support for Talk of the Towns comes from the Maine Community Foundation, partnering with donors and nonprofits statewide to strengthen Maine communities through grants and scholarships on the web at maincf.org. It's a few seconds before 10 o'clock, and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Talk of the Towns with your host, Ron Beard, is up next. Good morning, and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities, to share what works, to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is produced with support from Cooperative Extension, the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine with offices statewide. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine, and like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be a benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. So how did your wood supply hold up this winter? And have you got next year's supply under cover? Or maybe you don't burn wood at all, and, and you don't uh, think about wood because you can just turn on a switch and your home heats up from oil or another source. This morning, we're going to talk about who's burning wood in Hancock County and why, and are there any community-based approaches to assuring that our supply keeps up with demand. Our program will um, ho uh, feature some folks from College of, of the Atlantic who have been studying this issue, and I'm happy to welcome them to uh, Talk of the Towns now. I should uh, say, uh, full disclosure, I'm an adjunct faculty member and a board member at College of the Atlantic, uh, just so that you know. But we have with us Gray Cox. Gray is a professor at the college. Welcome to Talk of the Towns, Gray. Hi, it's great to be here. Gray, um, we'll, we'll ask you for a little bit of background on yourself in just a minute, but um, do you want to say anything about these, these students that you've brought along? Uh, well, yeah, Steve Wagner and Nick Harris have been working on this project uh, for quite a while, and Steve's uh, doing a senior project as part of it. Um, Nick's developing a senior project as a spinoff from it. They've both been very actively involved in the uh, portion of it that involves house-to-house -house, uh, surveys that we've been doing. Great. Steve, tell us a little bit about yourself. You're a, a graduating senior. Uh, yes, uh, I am a graduating, uh, theoretically graduating <laughs> senior. Uh, it should be about 18 days from now. And Great. Um, Great. yeah, I got involved in the project when I came back from my internship in uh, Brooklyn in January and uh, sort of got really into it. So a great opportunity for a senior project. And um, yeah. Great. What was your internship about? 
Uh, my internship was with Slow Food USA, so I've done a lot of work with uh, agricultural policy, and I had done it in both uh, the UK and the US. Most oh, recently. great, great! We've we've done at least one program on slow food um, here I, on oh, Talk really? Town. Excellent. Yep. yep. And how about you, um, Nick? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I'm originally from Colorado. Um, excited to be out in Maine. I love it out here. And this has been a really interesting project for me, just getting to know sort of the greater Hancock County, um, knocking on doors and talking to lots of different people. And it's just been a really thrilling project to be involved in. Um, and as Gray said, I've sort of had a spinoff of this project with my own business that I'm trying to launch here in Maine, which is called Gourmet Butanol, which hopefully I'll tell you a little bit more about later. Great. And butanol is an alternative fuel as well. That's right. Great. Yeah. Great. And I guess wood isn't an alternative fuel. It's, it's, a, it's a substantial fuel for people in Maine. Gray, tell us a little bit about um, how you got interested in this topic and how it relates to something called sustainability science. Yeah, well, um, I um, work with a group of people at the College Atlantic that uh, have established a center for applied human ecology where we're interested in looking at uh, uh, local and regional kinds of um, uh, ecological problems and social environmental issues. And uh, in, uh, up in, in the past, the, the CAHI, as it's called, the Center for Applied Human Ecology, has uh, worked, for example, on the watershed of the mm. Union River and have done a very extensive series of projects connected with that and water quality and so on. Um, uh, a couple years ago, we were, were thinking, well, what will be the next big thing for us as a project? And we thought, you know, energy is really important. Um, it's central to sustainability issues. And um, there are lots of different forms of, of, of um, alternative energy and wa uh, ways of, of uh, dealing with it that, that are, people are, are on the table now. And we thought about what COA might focus on. Um, we've got some folks who are doing a lot on wind energy, for example, Dave Feldman and Anna Demio. Um, but we also thought that uh, actually the use of wood, both cordwood and wood pellets, uh, for residential heating was a piece of the, the overall energy pie in the state that other schools like University of Maine Orono and other research groups weren't looking at and that was really could be a very important part of it. So we chose to focus on that and we actually we got a National Science Foundation grant to help us um, uh, work on that. We've been working on it for a year and a half or so now. Mm. What were some of the initial questions you began to think about and then we'll talk about how you collected some data that mm -hmm. uh, tested those? Well, uh, uh, one of the questions was, you know, what's the, uh, the effect of uh, burning wood in terms of our carbon footprint? And uh, an initial hypothesis that we had was that, in fact, uh, it would be good for the carbon footprint and for climate change issues, for example. Because uh, when you burn wood, you're essentially taking wood that's already in the carbon cycle and uh, just returning it to the, the atmosphere that it had come from before it was uh, captured by the trees that were growing it. Uh, unlike, say, oil, where you take uh, oil that hasn't been in the carbon cycle for a very long time and you're putting it back into it and changing the atmosphere. Um, so, And, and could wood it, is also seen as a renewable resource because you can grow it again? Exactly. It's right? a renewable resource. Um, it's a local resource. So in terms of energy security, it seemed like this might be a really useful and important kind of resource to be looking at, both because you don't have to Im import it from uh, Iraq or Libya. Mm -hmm but also because um, during an ice storm, it's right there in your yard. Mm. 
and uh, you don't need electric power to, mm -hmm. to use it mm -hmm. in the case of cordwood. Uh, we also thought it might be an important uh, opportunity for economic development and economic security, especially for low-income folks. So those were some of the kinds of issues that we were looking at mm -hmm. um, uh, when we first got into this. Mm -hmm. And later in the program, we'll um, ask uh, Don Cass, one of your colleagues, about some of the um, air quality type impacts as well. So you're probably looking at, at the whole, full range of things. We are. We, mm -hmm. we were really, uh, the other sort of key piece of this was, well, okay, maybe there's some interest reasons for being interested in using it, but what are the ecological costs mm -hmm. and social costs and, and the risks? And Don has been doing extensive work trying to uh, get a sense of what those are overall and has been doing some very specific uh, particle emission studies of the county to try and hone in on uh, relevant data. Mm -hmm. So how did you kind of design the, the research end of things the, the, when you're going out and talking with um, people about whether they burn wood or not and, and why? Well, in, in the project we've got, besides myself and Don, which you mentioned, uh, uh, da uh, Davis Taylor, who's looking at economic issues, and Ken Klein, who's been looking at legal ones. The part that I and, and uh, Steve and, and Nick and a few other students have been focusing on has to do with the culture of household wood use and household heating mm. and the culture of wood production. And uh, we decided to try and do a study that would um, be systematic to find out, well, who's burning wood and mm. why, and who isn't and why not. Because I understand you started with some census data uh, about who was burning wood or how many people were burning wood, but turned out that wasn't necessarily a good use of, of uh, census material. <laughs> That's right. Actually, we, the, the, uh, in our initial review of literature and stuff, we found that the census data uh, from about 10 years ago indicated that uh, 10 or 11 percent of people in Maine in general, and Hancock County in particular, uh, use wood. And that figure, 10%, is the one that's widely used in policy documents mm -hmm. uh, at the state level for mm -hmm. thinking about energy needs and resources. Um, as we got into doing this uh, household survey through the county, we found that um, 55 to 60% of people in Hancock County are using wood to at least some extent. Mm -hmm. And of those, uh, roughly half are using it for at least half of their, their heating. So it's much more substantial than people previously thought. Uh, and that obviously has some interesting implications and mm -hmm. opportunities. Maybe we'll talk about some of the policy mm -hmm. findings later. So um, you and your colleagues um, designed a survey mm -hmm. and, and designed a, a way to get a random sample of folks. Right. Tell us a little bit about that. Um, you didn't just go ask people that you saw wood smoke coming out of the chimneys. No, no, okay. <laughs> no we didn't. We, uh, we wanted to, to survey the whole county. Mm -hmm. We were thinking of the county as an interesting unit for study that might be scalable to the state level. And so we uh, divided the population of the county as a whole uh, up uh, in, in terms of the towns and um, selected a sample from each town that was proportional to its population mm -hmm. of the county as a whole. Mm -hmm. And then we used, uh, initially, uh, where they were easily available, uh, the property lists from the tax rolls for the towns to uh, generate a list of all the, the uh, property units in the, in the town and then did a random sample of those uh, uh, and uh, in some of the smaller towns where it's more difficult to get that kind of list, we used a, a simple geographic random distribution. Um, we have been going door to door, um, and uh, you, normally in a team of two students, um, and uh, or myself, uh, and we have a pretty simple survey that's the basic format where I ask people. Uh, how do they heat their house, and if it's with wood, uh, how much uh, cordwood do they use, or if it's with pellets, how many tons, if it's with oil, how much. 
and we ask about the kind of stove they have, and and then we we ask about um, what the reasons are mm. for choosing to heat with wood or to not, uh, and also we ask them whether they think that the use of uh, wood should be encouraged, uh, either for ecological or economic or environmental reasons or, or national security reasons and so on. But we use these questions as a kind of a prompt to allow people to explain in their own words how they heat and how they think about their heating. Mm. And re we're really trying to do not so much a uh, standardized survey with you know check response or a numerical response to questions, but a more of an ethnographic or anthropological approach where we can really try and get into people's culture. And we've actually found some very interesting kinds of cultural things. Mm. Well, let me ask the two students who have been out on the roads of Hancock County asking these questions, what some of their, um, what, what were their reactions when you knocked on a door and asked them, um, start with Steve and, and then go to Nick, uh, what were some of the reactions that you found? Um, Oh, well, so I guess it'd be, it's, it's interesting to sort of watch the progression. You know, at first it's Maine, and of course, we've just been through several, you know, pretty tense elections. Usually people open up the door with some serious trepidation, and they, they're very, very cautious. But usually once we ask, you know, can I ask how you heat your home, it's suddenly the facial expressions change. And people mm. are like, okay, well, this is interesting. Um, I, I, and especially, you know, if they burn with wood, sometimes they're just like, come on in, sit by the fire, you know. And so some people react like that. Um other people react like, oh, God, you're not my parole officer, are you? Or, you know, <laughs> who are you? But, you know, usually people are pretty open talking about how they heat their home. Right. We don't, we don't have a culture of, of, I don't think, of people knocking on each other's doors in, in Maine. So it probably does come as a surprise yeah. when someone's there. And, and I can imagine that suspicion is the first reaction. Yes. And then yeah. um, once they found out a little bit more, they're inviting you in. Um, Nick, what were some of your impressions as you went out on the road? Right. So peop what I've really found is that people just love talking about how they heat their homes. It's what they do, you know, all winter long. They're thinking about what the temperature is inside of their house. And um, it just people are really excited to share that sort of information with you. So we have about five, you know, pretty simple questions that we ask. And some of the interviews can last over an hour. Sometimes people just get on a roll and just get really excited about it. You can see it in their eyes. They're just... <laughs> <laughs> it's what people love to talk about. Sure, so. sure. So, Gray, you began to think about um, the results as they began to come in. You began to see some patterns. Tell us about the patterns you were beginning to see. Well, um, uh, one of them has to do with the, uh, the role of economic reasonings and, and, and reasons and cultural reasons for, for the choices people make. Um, we initially expected, I personally, I pretty strongly expected that economics would play a very prominent role in the reasons people gave for choosing the kind of heating fuel that they, that they use. But that's not what we found. We found actually that less than half, uh, I think in the most recent data, it's, uh, it's around 35% or so, I actually li yeah. list um, uh, economic reasons at all. Hmm. And of the ones that do, um, it turns out that there's split, that um, roughly the same percentage as in the, the sample as a whole use wood or use oil. So you, you, based on the fact that they're using economics as a, a reason, you couldn't predict which fuel they would use. And so that got us thinking, well, what, what, what's going on here, you know? Um, and then um, we started to have some really interesting uh, re responses that, that people gave that um, made us think that maybe culture plays a really important role. So, for example, um, someone might uh, say, uh, well, I, I don't heat with wood because my time is worth more than that, you know, assuming that, the, you know, it's the, all the labor involved. Mm -hmm. It's an mm -hmm. important part of the cost of, mm -hmm. of the, the heat. Someone else, in contrast, 
um, would say, um, well, you know, the thing I like about heating with wood is uh, you heat yourself three times. Mm-hmm. You know, once when you cut it, once when you split it, and once when you burn it, right? And don't forget lugging it in because <laughs> yeah, that's actually, probably the fourth time. Somebody else the other night said it's eight times, actually, <laughs> the, way they, the way they do it. Well, so um, those two people are viewing the costs of the, of the labor activity involved in a really different way. And, and it struck us, you know, it's really it's conditioned by their culture and their, their identity and the values mm. and the way they, they frame things. Mm. One seeing as a form of healthy exercise mm-hmm. and the other as, you know, a, a laborious chore. Did any of you see mm. that, that kind of thing emerge in some of the, the, the conversations? Did you have, um, Steve, did you, have, did you see that kind of emerge? Oh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. A lot of people, um, so I guess how I thought about it, you know, people's initial reaction would be like, oh, well, the cost, uh, the warmth, you know, it's keeping warm, keeping the house warm. That's what's most important to me. But then we also discovered there's a lot of sort of emotion and family tied into how you heat your home. So we had so many stories. I mean, I used to sit up here every night with my wife until she had passed, you know, stocking the stove. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, back when I was a kid, I'd go out and be all five of my siblings and my dad and my mom, we'd all go out, get the wood ready, and it'd be a whole day-long activity that was rewarded with a big meal at the end. Mm-hmm. So it was really tied into those sort of feelings. You know, people felt they had to say cost, but there was so much more behind it. Uh-huh. Um, Nick, did yeah. you find similar similar stories? Yeah, and an, another interesting part of that, too, is just the sort of the misconception that a lot of people think that wood is more expensive than, than oil. It sort of gets back to what Gray was saying in terms of people's time, but... Um, I, th- I think most people don't know really how m- how much you know you're paying per BTU mm. with all these different sources of of you know heat. So they might have had some theory about that, but they never bothered to check it out and did a, a direct cost um, thing. They might, I suppose, if they were building a house, they might go through that initially. But maybe after they've done it, they may not have paid attention to the cost of oil versus the cost of wood. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And there are actually there are a lot of ins and outs and interesting things. About the, I thought, you know, heat is heat. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the more we looked into it, we found people have these different sorts of responses, different kinds of types of heat. Some like to get close to the fire, mm-hmm. get warmed up. And, but, and then also the physics of it is somewhat different. Like the people who heat with wood... Um, probably actually use fewer BTUs to heat their house, to, at least typically, because they often will have a place where they can get very warm near the stove, but then they often like to keep their bedrooms cool, for mm-hmm. example. And in terms of the BTUs that you lose to the outer environment and you need to generate for your heating system, it's the temperature at the envelope of the house that's the key thing. Mm. And so it, it seems that, in, at least in the high percentage of the cases, people who are heating with wood actually have the envelope of their house significantly cooler than the, the oil burners. So they're probably using fewer total BTUs, which is something that's often mm-hmm. overlooked. Yeah. So an oil burner um, might, um, unless they have lots of zones in their house, right. they might try to keep the house uniformly warm because, you know, um, that's mm-hmm. what, 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 what yeah. they expect. But um, a wood burner might kind of naturally know that the, mm-hmm. the warmest place is going to be near the wood stove. Yeah. yeah. And this sort of gets to the some of the data that we were looking at when we came up with this typology of, uh-huh. of uh, different cultures. When you say so typology. I'm not sure everybody understands what well, that word means. Well, I'm not sure I do oh, either okay. because we're, we're sort of, we're, we're trying to figure out what we mean by dividing things up this way. But uh-huh. we, we've been f- looking for patterns, mm-hmm. right? And w- it seemed that we found two types of, um, of families. And uh, it's, it's very rough and we're still, you know, so working with it. But um, it has seemed useful to... to categorize them in the following way. On the one hand, 
They're the folks that we might uh, call the modern consumer family, mm-hmm. where the kind of core metaphor for them in terms of the way they think about heating is that uh, heat is a service that's provided to you by a professional. And in contrast, uh, they're what we might call the self-reliant Maine Yankee families. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they're the ones for whom heating, the core metaphor is that heating is a, an activity, it's a practice, something that you do for yourself. Mm. And they have really different ways of uh, looking at costs. So, for example, in the example I gave earlier, you could imagine it's the self-reliant Maine Yankees who are looking at um, this practice of heating as something that heats you three times. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have different attitudes towards space and time. So, typically, at least, the modern consumer family um, is expecting a, uh, uh, this heating service to be uniform throughout the house, spatially, and relatively uniform temporally through the day. So the house is going to be the same temperature in the morning when you get up and uh, at night when you go to bed. Whereas the main Yankee family uh, um, is uh, typically uh, wanting a, a place where you can get warm when you come inside, uh, close to the stove. Mm-hmm. There's a zone of heat and they might often want their bedrooms to be cool. Uh, spatially, they also think that um, it's okay to have some places that are dirty mm-hmm. in the sun, you know, mm-hmm. where you dump the wood when you come in, mm-hmm. whereas the modern consumer family wants sort of more clean, uniformly clean space of the house. Mm-hmm. Uh, and temporally, the, the, the uh, self-reliant main Yankee family might um, be used to the idea that the temperature of the house is gonna vary through the day, through the week, and through the seasons, and that that's normal, normal part of it. Um, we, we found a variety of other kinds of categories, uh, the aesthetics of it. Um, Let me just interrupt so, so the on. listeners yeah. understand that you're tuned to Talk of the Towns this morning. We're talking about wood heat as part of our residential energy future. We have in the studio with us Gray Cox, who's a professor at College of the Atlantic, along with two students who have been part of the research um, uh, looking into this in Hancock County, Steve Wagner and Nick Harris. Um, a little later on, we'll open up our phone lines, and you can give us a call to offer your p- opinions about um, wood heat and or not wood heat. one 625 is our call-in number. But, Gray, you were talking about some of these categories and, and how you're beginning to see some patterns emerge. Yeah, I might just mention a few more, and then we can, we can talk about it some more. Um, uh, in terms of the aesthetics of heat, um, the, the modern consumer family type... Um, sort of use heat as something that would be like a good waiter. <laughs> you uh, don't see them or hear them. It's just the food appears. You know, that's sort of the ideal. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> service is provided, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas uh, on one model of a good waiter, obviously there are others. Um, but um, the self-reliant Maine Yankee family, they actually are really interested in and into the aesthetics of the whole process. Mm. They, they like the touch and the feel of the wood. They, they don't mind getting a little dirty, you know. Um, they like to see the fire. Um, they, uh, people will talk about the ambiance that they mm-hmm. like. They mm-hmm. like the smells. Somebody was saying, well, I don't, I don't, you know, oil heat is just vanilla. You know, I like flavors <laughs> in my heat, you know. It's, um, um, uh, in terms of sort of gender and family and age issues, um, there are differences. So with the modern consumer family type. The idea is that heating is a service that's provided in a kind of general gender-neutral way. E- either spouse could say, you know, honey, would you call, you know, 
the, the, oil, the, company, the oil company, the, the and, whoever, company. Yep. and yep. get the service fixed. Whereas um, for the family that where heating as a practice is something that you do, the idea is that different people like to do different things and mm -hmm. they have different talents and mm -hmm. strengths, physical mm -hmm. strengths and mm -hmm. so on. The classic stereotype would be, you know, well, the husband goes out and mm -hmm. chops the wood down, splits it, and the wife is by the fire all day cooking and, mm -hmm. and stoking the fire. I, I think that there's actually a lot more models than that. But the idea that, that it's okay and normal for different people to want to do and, and be asked to do different chores that are part of it all uh, is part of that So it's that a way of, model. Of, of many members contributing. And, and Steve, you mentioned the, the story of the family who said, we did this as a family activity. So mm -hmm. even little kids could help out and, 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 and do that. I certainly remember that as a youngster myself, that that was a way that I could help. And when my parents got older, I know that one of the things that I appreciated doing was going over that weekend to get their wood supply in and, and helping them. You know, mm -hmm. as my dad got older, I was doing a little bit more of the work than he was, but there was this sense that I was contributing to their well-being. I, I wouldn't have felt the same way if I was writing a check for their oil. <laughs> it wouldn't have felt the same at all. So, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah, exactly. What, what else did you, did you hear that kind of um, uh, backs up some of the patterns that, that Gray has been talking about? Nick? Um, well, I sort of think that, you know, like you were saying, this is burning wood really has a huge impact on people's childhood memories. Mm. And that's that's something we've had a lot of stories about. So talking to a lot of elderly folk and just sort of hearing them reminisce about, you know, really wood has really defined a lot of their childhood moments. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty incredible. I You know, personally, I don't remember anything about heating my home when I was a kid in Colorado. We don't use too much wood out mm -hmm. there. Um, but, yeah, you know, mm -hmm. I think that that is sort of that typology that Gray is talking about. And it's it's really sort of played a major role in sort of defining who people are out of Maine. And, and uh, Gray, um, you certainly saw uh, growing up in Bar Harbor uh, the waves of young people who came in. Mm -hmm. So not all of these people are are originally Maine Yankee farmers, but they've, uh, or families, but they've adopted the practices. Because, you know, we see, lo saw lots of people in the 70s come in, and they were going to be burning wood by God. Yeah, it was an important right. impar important part and, of the sort of back the land And movement. gardening. Yeah, right. Right. yeah and there's, there's some analogies. We've been talking with some of the folks at the college who are working on food systems mm. and findings that, that they, impressionistically so far, have some more sense that there, there's some differences in the way people look mm -hmm. at food systems as well as mm -hmm. energy systems. But um, one of the things that actually tipped us off that, that there might be some cultural things going on here is uh, interviewing somebody who said, uh, well, I moved here about 12 years ago, and when I did, uh, you know, uh, it seemed like everybody in Maine heats with wood, and so I, so I just started heating with wood. Hmm. There was a sense that, you know, this person wanted to be a, a Mainer, that, that they moved here partly because of a sense of identity mm -hmm. and wanting to be, be a part of the culture. And they viewed heating with wood as part of that culture. Um, it, 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 I should emphasize that these two types are, are not um, referring to pe people's, you know, sort of family history mm -hmm. necessarily, though there are obviously interesting correlations with that. Mm -hmm. But there are people who grew up in Maine who heated with wood until they were 18, and when they got out of that house, they never split another log the rest of their life. Right. And then there are other people who come in from New York or Pennsylvania and mm -hmm. the like, and... and see it as, as a, the kind of cultural practice that they want to adopt and they're here for. Um, uh, so I, what, what questions, as you get out, went out and as, as students, what, what questions did these interviews prompt for you 
you know, what, what, did you begin to think about policy kinds of things? What, what else happened in addition to collecting the data? What kind of sparked in your mind? Steve, start with you and then go to Nick. Um, sure. I mean, I, I guess one of the things that um, sparked me was sort of uh, cooperation between neighbors in terms of how if people heat their homes, and particularly how, you know, because uh, one of the things we're finding is that a lot of people actually get their wood from their land mm -hmm. or from their neighbor's land, mm -hmm. and I've been very interested in how that cooperation happens because it, it can be an intensive process to go in, chop, uh, fell a tree, let it season, take it out. You know, it's not something... You, you know, you can do on your own. There, there is some equipment you might need, whether that be a tractor or something like that, and that's a that can be a high investment for a single family. So a lot of people do, do these sort of trades, and it, and so for me, it's been very interesting. And this is sort of where my senior projects evolved out of, um, the idea of trying to, uh, trying to get neighbors who maybe have started talking about this or haven't started talking about how they do manage their woodlots, um, because there's an inter interesting situation with. Uh, the woodlots in Maine, that a lot of it are sort of spruce fir mix and, you know, may not be the best for firewood, but there are things we can do to increase wildlife or increase firewood or whatever someone values in their own property. And, and what we've been, what we and what I've been trying to do is sort of start to find neighbors who are managing and then expand out from there. Mm -hmm. Talk to your other neighbors. Mm -hmm. What are they doing? What can you share from each other? How can you help each other sort of deal with uh, rising heating costs, um, fire hazards, uh, interest in wildlife, those sort of things. And I think some of your work point, points out that um, rather than being in large tracts, most of the land, at least in the coastal um, mm -hmm. uh, regions of, of Maine, is held in very, relatively small, two to ten acre right, yeah. parcels. Yeah, Maine, Maine is unique in that. So it's, um, I mean, you have about 94% of the state is covered in forest. It's mm -hmm. the most forested state in the country. Pine Street, Pine Tree State for a reason. reason right. And um, and within that, yeah, particularly in Hancock County, it's uh, across the state. Plurality of the people are private owners, and in Hancock County, it's private owners who may even have less than ten acres, so mm -hmm. they can't enroll in, you know, state assistance programs that maybe larger acreage people can, like a tree growth program or something like that. So right. it really is about you're really on your own, but you know you're not. Your neighbors are in these same situations, mm -hmm. so that that's what this is starting to look at. And so right. I, I'd be very curious to hear from people, you know. What sort of things do they do with their neighbors in terms of how they heat their homes or how they manage their woodlots? Because I, I had a, um, a show not too long ago about a local food policy, and, and uh, a young farmer was on with us, and I asked, well, how did you learn about farming? <laughs> well, I asked a farmer. <laughs> and what you're saying is, how do I learn about wood management, you know, cutting wood? I'm going to ask my neighbor. You know, I'm going to get that information from someone who does it. And I think you've, you've taken the, the idea a little bit further and said, what if you kind of began to drop these neighbors together so that they might be able to, to manage the land cooperatively in some fashion to get multiple benefits? Um, and that's what um, a lot of uh, folks who go to the University of Maine talk about. They, you know, they, they go to the forestry school and they talk about the mutual benefits, the, the multiple benefits. You mentioned wildlife, but also wood production, um, aesthetics, um, air, cleaning up the air because trees mm -hmm. do that. All of those kinds of things could come out of a, a kind of cooperative management plan. Yeah. We're tuned to your tune to talk of the towns this morning. We're talking about wood heat as a residential energy source, and in the studio with us are um, Steve Wagner, a student at College of Atlantic, and Nick Harris, also a student, along with Gray Cox, who's a professor at the College of Atlantic. We do have um, one of Gray's uh, colleagues with us um, by phone right now. Don Cass is a professor at College of Atlantic and um, focuses a lot of his studies on chemistry. Welcome to Talk of the Towns, Don. Hi, Ron. How are you doing? Good, good. 
tell us tell us a little bit about your involvement in this in this uh, wood heat project, this wood energy project. How did you get involved? Um, I think it started because I grew up in Niagara Falls, and uh, my dad worked for DuPont, one of the chemical companies. You know that for years and years dumped waste materials into Love Canal, uh-huh. and they thought they were doing a good thing, you know, isolating all these wastes. And then at some point, Love Canal turned into the tragedy that it turned into. And ever since then, I think I've been wary of things that people think are good things, which might not turn out to be such good things. Uh-huh. So I sort of approach this as, it sounds like burning a lot of wood would be a great idea, but maybe we should look a little bit more carefully before everybody actually goes in that direction. Mm-hmm. And, and how have you approached that question? What kinds of, of experiments or, or testing have you done to, to ask those kinds of questions? Well, first I just got a group of students together and we brainstormed everything that maybe we should worry about, mm. which sort of started with um, what's, what's going to happen to the environment if we harvest a lot of wood in terms of soil quality, wildlife diversity, health of the people who are out there cutting down the trees looked at that whole suite of issues, sort of, and the students talked to a bunch of experts, and we were pretty convinced that as long as uh, harvesting is done carefully, all of those risks are sort of manageable. And then we turned to the what's going to happen to the homeowner um, and the results of actually burning the wood once it's harvested. And some students tried to decide whether the exercise value, the sort of warm yourself three times argument, would outweigh the you're going to hurt your back lugging all the wood around argument and a, a bunch of those issues. And we finally decided that the real standout was the effects on um, air quality. Mm. Mm. Uh, and so we tried to find out what's emitted when wood is burned in different ways and tried to compare that to uh, current emissions of different things in the county mm-hmm. to see which emissions might have the biggest impact. And that led us to focus mostly on what most people think of as soot mm-hmm. and just little particulate matter in general. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned uh, burning woods in different ways. Uh, just mm-hmm. list the kinds of things that you were looking at there, the, the techniques of burning wood. We tried to go all the way from just burning it in a traditional fireplace um, through traditional wood stoves, higher tech wood stoves, Russian fireplaces, things like that, pellet stoves, and then tried to compare that to the emissions from burning alternative fuels like fuel oil. Mm-hmm. So it turns out that wood is a wood can either be really clean or really dirty depending mm-hmm. on how you burn it. Okay, well tell us a little bit about how how best to burn wood. Um, a lot of air and hot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the pollution that comes out of wood is from incomplete combustion which means you're you're getting leftover little pieces of wood coming out of your chimney and you're also losing a lot of the heat value by not completely burning those little pieces of wood. So w- when you think about a Russian fireplace, maybe d- describe that. That sounds like the, one of the best ways to burn wood. You're burning I hot. I think it is. Yeah. Tell us a little so bit about that. So you wake up in the morning and you build yourself a big fire in this massive masonry fireplace, and it burns really, really hot, and then you're done for the day that the fireplace stores up all of that energy that's generated and that'll last you usually until the evening, and then you get to burn one more big fire and heat up the masonry again, and then you're done for the evening. Mm, mm. So I think that's a good way to go. The problem is it's expensive to build a big masonry fireplace, right? and most people don't have them. Sure. 
The other one I'm a fan of are wood pellets mm -hmm. or some sort of system where you actually force more air into the combustion chamber, which helps create more complete combustion and get more energy out. Mm. So the, the, the one of the ways that people have traditionally, I said traditionally, in the last 30, 40 years have burned wood, they've got a, um, a stove that they can damper down or up. And, mm -hmm. and so they tend to um, get a fire going um, and then damper down because they think that because it, it will last longer. The, fi the mm -hmm. flame will last longer. But what you're saying is that sometimes if the wood isn't particularly dry, um, a lot of that um, goes up either in soot or, or heat that's, that's wasted? Yep. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So how did you actually get um, some indications about um, which of these techniques worked and what were some of the overall effect? I've seen some uh, photographs of you and students with some, uh, some in instruments that you went out and uh, kind of used. What were those uh -huh. instruments? Tell us about those. Um, we had two approaches. One, students went out and drove around the county maybe 10 or 12 times over the course of the winter, counting levels of particles. We bought these little particle counters mm. that measure laser light scattering, and they tell you how many tiny particles and how many sort of bigger particles there are in the air. And so from this data, um, particle levels are reasonably low. They're considerably below the EPA level where you should start being concerned, which is a good sign. They're highest between Ellsworth and Bangor, sort of along the main drag there, which I guess isn't too surprising. They tend to be lowest on the eastern half of the county, and the western half is sort of in between the eastern half and the Ellsworth-Bangor corridor. Mm. But nowhere, nowhere are they high enough to really be of, of concern right now. And those are measuring particles that um, come from all, all sources, not just yes. burning wood. So right. but you're trying to get some sense of the concentrations of those, where that's happening most, and, and whether that's of, of uh, particular um, hazard to, what, human health primarily? Yes. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And there are, there are risk estimates of every time the particle level goes up by X, how many more people are likely to have respiratory difficulties, things like that. Mm. So ultimately, we'd like to get a, if this many people switch to burning wood, it's likely to raise the asthma rate by this much. Mm. That's sort of where we hope to end up. Mm -hmm. And uh, Gray had said earlier that um, the, the studies that they're doing in terms of the house-to-house -house surveys indicate that 65% of Hancock County residents, somewhere in that range, are burning mm -hmm. wood for some of their heat. Um, mm -hmm. And what, you're, what I hear you saying is that um, if that continued at that rate, um, that doesn't seem to be a particular health hazard. I think that's right. We didn't. The second part of our study was going to be to actually collect what came out of chimneys from mm. people who heated their houses different ways. Mm -hmm. And then we have this instru instrument where you expose these glow-in-the-dark bacteria to whatever you want to test. And if the material annoys the bacteria, they don't glow so much. Mm. So it's a way that people get a handle on how toxic things are to relatively sensitive organisms. So we wanted to collect emissions and then expose the bacteria to them. And if it doesn't bother the bacteria, it probably won't bother us. Hmm. Hmm. But we never completed that, and hopefully we'll do that next winter. Okay. And so what's, uh, what, besides that, what's, what's next for your part of, of this uh, research? Um, the thing I'd really like to get a student working on is a better sort of computer model of if this much comes out of these houses, what will that do to the general air quality? Mm. We sort of have a rough model, but it, 
you need that sort of model if you want to connect emissions to ultimate health effects. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, Don, th- thanks so much for being with sure. us on Talk of the Towns. That was yep. Don Cass from College of Atlantic, professor there, uh, focused primarily on chemistry, but as you can see, he's, he started conversations that said, let's look at the whole picture. And, Gray, that's probably a good description. We can get our students here talking about it, too, that there's a little bit different approach at College of Atlantic than there might be at some other place, that notion of human ecology of, of kind of integrating the learning. Tell us a little bit about that, that approach to learning. Yeah, well, um, the, the basic uh, 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 approach at COA is you know, to t- adopt a human ecological one, where what that means is that we want to look at uh, issues from the point of view of all the relevant disciplines, and uh, also uh, f- from the point of view of uh, all the relevant stakeholders. It's part of the reason we wanted to go around and do interviews with people throughout the community in the, in the, in the county. And, um, and we also wanted to look at it not just from the point of view of, of, um, of sort of academic disciplines and ways that they might have thoughts about those, but from the point of view of their own language and the way they look at it. So sort of an ethnographic approach mm. was an important part of it. Um, you know, so this kind of holistic approach is a, a key to it all. And it's been really, uh, for me, a very enjoyable and delightful opportunity, this project, to do that kind of work. And your students have said it's been great to get out into the county, so that you're getting out of the classroom and you're talking with people about their lives. Um, I'm going to come back to, to, to Nick and his, um, his spin-off project in just a minute, but I'll list our phone numbers in case you've got some thoughts or opinions about burning wood as part of uh, your residential energy um, uses. Uh, give us a call at one 866 625-9378. That's one 625 if you've got questions or you want to share your own experience. Um, Nick, tell us a little bit about butanol and what it is and, and how you might turn that into a product that you could sell. Right, so butanol is a fuel that can replace gasoline and heat and oil. So it can be used in your car or in your heat and oil furnace without modifying any equipment, 100%. So it stands out because unlike ethanol, um, you know, you don't need to mix it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've we found that about 60 people, 60% of everybody burns some sort of firewood, but also 80% of homes are equipped with heating oil furnaces. Okay. And so what this means is that people are already set up to start burning butanol. Um, you know, they don't need to go out and purchase some new piece of equipment. And what butanol basically is made from is, is organic material. So we're trying to use food waste, um, basically there's a lot of carbon that's in food waste. Also, you can use pulp wood, you can use waste wood. Um, the Old Town Mill is currently researching technologies of using the byproduct of the paper process. And basically you just take these carbons and ferment them with a bacteria that basically secretes butanol and extract that and there you go, put it in your car and you're ready to go. Great. Well, well, and, and you get the byproduct if you're using food because you get some compost material as well. So you've got two byproducts that are useful to humans. That's right. So we're basically just taking out the carbon. And so all the important nutrients for the soil, like the nitrogen and the phosphorus, that's all returned. So mm-hmm. we, we take out the carbons and then we compost the rest. And so it's not competing with composting. And instead of taking all this food waste and putting it into the landfill, we're we're building healthy soils and also keeping a lot of sort of bad emissions out of the atmosphere as well because butanol burns really clean um, because it has that extra oxygen on it because it is an alcohol it, it burns completely 
So even though gasoline has more BTUs per gallon, you get more energy release per combustion cycle with with butanol because it is burning so cleanly. Mm. I'm going to come back to you, but I yeah. do have a phone call. So um, go ahead with your question or comment, please. Let, let us know your first name and the town you're calling from as well. Good morning. This is Peter over in Brooks. Um, you mentioned uh, the concept of the holistic uh, you know, consideration, and I, I think that's key here. You know, and as I reflect you know, on some of the, the uh, other factors to consider, um, you know, when you're talking about using wood heat and certainly the particulates and all our consideration. But um, when you employ energy conservation and, you know, in your architecture, uh, you super insulate and, and whatnot, um, the volume um, uh, renders the almost insignificant the issues. Mm. Um, when, when, you know, you can have a, a, a modest, small to modest size uh, living space and heat it on what, you know, a half a cord and cook and heat on half a cord, you know, um, that you can burn even uh, less than that uh, more cleanly with a rocket stove, which you can build yourself. Hmm. Um, and so uh, the scale of considerations has to be broad and and isolating this issue and and trying to determine policy issues without you know taking consideration the whole ball of wax uh, can be misleading. Mm. So that's my little contribution. That's great. Today. A very healthy contribution. Thanks for your call this morning. Do we All have right. another phone call as well? Let's take the second phone call and then we'll get some discussion with our guests. Go ahead, uh, give us your first name and where you're calling from and go ahead with your question or comment, please. Uh, David, I'm calling from Brooklyn. Thanks for the show. And I, uh, I wanted to say I'm right on board with Peter from Brooks uh, in that, uh, well, in that we... We need to look at the situation, the problem, so-called holistically. Uh, just a little footnote: the, the but, butyl, or whatever it's called, but, that's butanol. A idea. Yeah. Butanol. I've never heard of that before. That's that's very interesting to me. Uh, but what I wanted to say was about the wood burning uh, and the uh, the Russian fireplaces. Uh, on the one hand, I wanted to to mention that there is an alternative to expensive, expensive Russian fireplaces, and they're called Finnish stoves, and they're small, comparatively, uh, compared to a Russian fireplace. They're not uh, one of these luxuries for the rich, like the Prius. Uh, They were invented in uh, Iceland uh, by the uh, government, and it was mandated that every... uh, affordable housing house, which the government built, which in Iceland was really affordable. I don't mean you had to be making, you know, 150000 a year in order to pay the mortgage payment. But affordable house had to have one of these in it. And it's basically built in a 55-gallon drum. And a young man named Aubrey knows how to make these things, and he lives in Maine. Hmm. And uh, were we to grab this bull by the horns and make a whole bunch of these things at the BIW or at some plant that somebody might want to start up, uh, we could burn our alder and our, our brushwood uh, very efficiently with a lot of heat 
in the store, which was made locally, which was small and affordable by the average hombre. Great. And uh, uh, I, I just, when you're factoring in expenses, you have to consider the expenses of one of the other alternatives, electricity, and you have to consider that fully. And when you factor in the, the, the particulate generation of the electrical plant and you also factor in the mountaintop removal, ecological devastation, et cetera, et cetera, it's very important to look at these things holistically uh, in order to come up with numbers which really do suggest uh, what we're doing instead of just a part of what we're doing, a selective part which makes us feel good about what we're doing because we, we ain't doing good and we've got to change it. And until we get the numbers right, we're not going to be inspired to do that. Okay. Well, thanks for your call this thanks. morning. One eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. So, response to these uh, callers, both of them uh, suggesting um, um, support for the kind of the ecological approach, the human ecological approach, looking at the uh, full thing. And and Gray, you're not um, ready to talk about policy yet. You're very preliminarily um, looking at the data that you're collecting. So, um, the policy will come a little bit later. But um, respond to these these calls. Well, I I think uh, Peter and David's points are really well taken. Um, the importance of insulating, you know, to increase the efficiency of your heating system, regardless of what you use, is absolutely crucial, and it's it's uh, pretty clearly the single most uh, important and cost-effective thing that can be done. Um, and it's also really important, as uh, David was pointing out, to sort of look to local ways of uh, doing construction of uh, different kinds of stoves and heating systems, um, and both because it creates local employment and um, also allows people to sort of participate in this uh, culture that, that I think is important in terms of their identity mm. for a lot of people. Um, and this this um, notion that um, you've discovered that 65% somewhere, 60 or 60%, 60%, 60%, yeah. 60% are using wood in some form, mm -hmm. that's a lot different than the census figures showed from the last census. I don't know what they are for, for this census. Yeah. So I guess this is new information for anybody that's considering policy that people are already using wood. Yeah, and yeah. I, th I think... Um, you know, we, uh, sort of in a tentative way, the kind of po some of the policy issues we might start to think about and be, and be guiding the exploration that we do and the conversations that we have in different contexts are, for example, that it looks as though um, we would be able to increase, or perhaps this is the easiest way to put it, we could decrease the amount of oil we use, um, cutting it back about 50%. Um, by increasing the number of people who actually use wood, a number of the folks that we've been interviewing have been talking excitedly about wanting to get or actually expecting delivery of wood pellet uh, stoves or other kinds of cordwood burning. So there, it seems that there's a, a market for people who, who want to expand into it. And then the people who, who, who are already using wood um, can, in, certainly in many cases, ex expand their usage of it Quite readily, they've already got the stove in place. They've got the place to, you know, stock their wood, and and as the price of oil goes up, which it's doing, um, or it's been doing, mm -hmm. um, they're they're ready to move in in the market. Um, so that, that that's one kind of consideration. And then a second is that um, I think we, as we've been visiting households, we've been finding um, a significant number have older stoves. A significant number have wood burning practices that may not be making the best use of the wood. Uh, a recent thing is, you know, people get wood delivered by big dump trucks. It gets dumped in their lawn, and in a lot of cases you drive around, you see these piles of wood that are getting wet, soaking up water, and it, it, it can uh, cost you 15 to 20 percent of your uh, BTUs 
to burn that, that uh, greener or wetter wood. So there's, so edu- there's kind of an educational, educational thing that could yep, be done. Yep. Yep. Um, and then there are, there are also, uh, I think, uh, in terms of LIHEAP and making uh, w- fuels available to uh, low-income people, it's going to be a big issue in the coming years because of cutbacks in the federal budget mm-hmm. and looking to ways in which, in Maine, we might use public lands to subsidize uh, low-income people is, is another policy issue mm-hmm. that we should be looking at. Mm-hmm. We do have another call. Let's take that call. List your uh, first name and where you're calling from, and then go ahead with your question or comment, please. Uh, hi, this is Michael from Stonington. Um, great show. And uh, I just wanted to say that, you know, what what we found, my wife and I bought a new stove a couple of years ago. We we used, uh, I, won't, I won't go into name brands here, but we used a, a, a tried-and-true name brand old cast iron airtight wood-burning stove from the 70s for years as auxiliary heat. And, um, and you know, we were reasonably satisfied, but uh, when the incentive from Obama came out to buy a new high-efficiency stove, we decided it was time to make the leap, and we went out and bought a um, uh, what they call a hybrid, a, a soapstone uh, cast iron frame, soapstone stove with um, wood gasification feature. And no catalytic converter here, but... I, I can tell you that our experience over the last two winters, it's been night and day. Hmm. Um, it, it really, this stove burns incredibly cleanly. It, it, it leaves very, very little ash compared with our previous stove. Um, I think we're using, I would, I would guess, a third less wood for the same amount of heat. And the chimney, uh, no comparison in the state hmm. of the chimney yeah. at, at the end of the season. It, it just is a... Um, it, the flames actually burn at the top of the stove, um, blue and bright, and uh, and the wood almost looks like it isn't burning. It's a really odd thing, but um, we're delighted, and I, I think this is a, just a giant leap forward, not only in cleaner air, but, but in more efficient use of, um, of material. And, of course, dry, dry hardwood. Your, your guest there is absolutely on the money there. You know, do not let your... Fuel. That's just giving away money, using <laughs> your heat to dry your fuel. That's just right. idiotic. Well, so. thanks so much for your call this morning. Thanks for your show. one 625 9378 We've got time for one or two more calls. One of the other aspects of your survey, survey material was going out and asking for the processors of wood. What did you find when you talked with people who were cutting wood and, and delivering it, Steve? Um, so we've really just started the data okay. talking to people who have... Um, uh, who are cutting wood because a lot of it, you know, one of the things I was surprised about, you know, there are quite a number of people who are still cutting from their own land. Okay. Um, so, I mean, but what we found from that is, uh, at least the people I can speak on, the people who are heating their home and cutting with their own land, is that there's a real dedication to that. I mean, mm-hmm. we have one brilliant story of someone who's uh, fairly physically disabled, but who still gets out there every day in his tractor to go cut that wood just because mm-hmm. it means, you know, so much to do it. But um, on more of an economic level, you know, it's, a lot of people, it's as local as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and what, and so the intention is to talk with more wood, wood cutters and, and suppliers? That's right. Yeah, that's uh, part of it that uh, we're still working on. Okay, mm-hmm. good. We have another phone call. Um, give us your first name and where you're calling from, and then go ahead with your question or comment, please. Hi, this is Nick from Alderboro. Yes. Uh, I've been heating with wood for 40-something years, so i got a little experience with uh-huh. it. And one of the things that I'm thinking about is if more people go to heating with wood... In local areas, has anyone looked at the sustainability of the har- uh, hardwood harvest, mm. wood firewood harvest, within local areas? Maine is, you know, certainly known for having more wood than any other state, so to speak. And uh, 
but a lot of that's up north and out west. And so where the populated areas are, mm. what's the sustainability of getting the wood from there? Because are we, are if we you cutting start more than hauling wood, wood over long yep. distances, then what's known as your energy return on energy invested goes way down because of the fuel to haul it. Right. And so it would be good if, I don't know what, uh, probably the forestry department might take a look at, at the sustainability on local levels of, of uh, uh, going forward with more people burning wood. Well, great question, Nick. Thanks very much. Okay, good enough. Great. Um, well, we've uh, tried to do a kind of back-of-the-envelope kind of initial study of just that, exactly that issue. And what we found is there are about a million acres of wooded land in Hancock County and uh, about 22,000 households. And if um, uh, we wanted to have uh, half of them heat entirely with wood, uh, it would take about 10% uh, of, of the acreage, assuming that you get about a half a cord a year produ productivity. Um, per acre. Per acre. Yes. Yeah. Yep. And uh, that's uh, uh, about a quarter of the, the hardwoods that we have in the county. We're about 43% hardwood currently. Um, so the woods is there. And then the question is, you know, should we be using it for, for this or something else? A lot of the hardwoods that are there are, for example, a beach that's um, infected with uh, bark diseases and the like, and that make great firewood. So that's one of the aspects of this to be thinking about. Uh, another point, and this ties in with Steve's project very much, is that uh, especially along the coast, there are a lot of areas where there are uh, spruce and fir that have grown up from old um, pastures, for mm -hmm. example, and really uh, could, could benefit ecologically uh, from various kinds of thinning that might uh, create space for, for some uh, hardwood. Um, so uh, there are it, I think the, the short uh, back-of-the-envelope answer is, yep, there's plenty of wood here, mm -hmm. um, and it's you know at, at a reasonable price, and there could be more if the uh, lands were managed differently and, and better in ecological ways. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you're going to find out um, different dimensions to the, to the answer to that question as you talk with some of the harvesters. You'll find out a little bit more about where they're getting their mm -hmm. wood and, and what they think the supply is, and then you've got um, kind of that... The, the state statistics that would mm -hmm. indicate how fast is wood growing and how fast are we harvesting. So yeah. those things are, are certainly part of the uh, of the mix. Well, where would you like to take the conversation in the last five minutes or so? What what are what are some of the implications, uh, Steve? Your 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 the notion of your uh, your senior project and so on. What what are you finding in that process? Um, well, within that process, you know, uh, particularly going back to some of Nick's um, uh, points, of that you know, a lot of people they. It's uh, once you hit them, they're not they're not going out and just selecting the best trees and just taking them down, sort mm -hmm. of thing. A lot of people are, uh, um, you know, they do have a methodology of how they do it. You mm -hmm. know, they, it, a lot of it goes back to you know, there's an older notion in Maine of, you know, if you have ten acres, you can heat yourself every single year for a lifetime mm -hmm. if you do it right and you mm -hmm. do sort of selective harvesting. And I guess, you know, as I do the neighborhood forestry project, we start talking with people and we learn a lot just from neighbors of what they're doing. We mm -hmm. work with the Forest Service and we share that, but there's actually some good information out now, and I guess one of the last points I would just point out is there's something called the Small Woodland Owners Association of Maine, or um, SWOM, uh, which is www.swoam.org, and that's a great resource for people on how to manage your woodlot so that you can continue to produce wood. Great, great. And, and the, that 10 acres, um, mm -hmm. um, you, you say if somebody only owns two acres, they might 
talk with their neighbor who has 15. Exactly. Right. You start talking to the right. neighbor, you start collaborating, and even it's, it's something as simple as, you know, just start sharing what you do, you know, walk through each other's yards, and you can start to see the possibilities depending on your right. land and depending on your values. So in some ways, you're also saying t- tapping into that older wi- wisdom that's already there on the landscape and mm-hmm. then um, mixing that with the professional advice that you might get from Swam. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Nick, what's, what's next in your project? Um, well, we'll be, in terms of the butanol, we'll be producing small amounts in a lab really soon. We just got a lot of our equipment in, and we're about set to get going. So that's going to happen in the next week or so. And Gray, what do you hope for the project as you conclude it um, going forward? Going forward, well, I, I, I'm hoping that the, the this neighborhood forests project will uh, blossom in a variety of ways. And we also have a project that Finn Ramsey is heading up, working with local schools. and. Uh, it's very exciting. Kids are really get into this, and it's a great way to get into the community all in all. And how do, people how do wanna, people learn more about If people want to learn more about it and follow up, they can uh, contact me, Gray Cox, at College of the Atlantic. Um, email is gray, G-R-A-Y, at coa.edu. And we have a, a website, which is hancockcountywoodshed.wordpress.com. Great. So if they, if they look uh, just for Woodshed, Hancock County, they'll probably find something. Uh, yeah. there, there, yeah, especially if they look in the WordPress. Great, yeah. great. Well, thanks for all of you for being with us on this morning. We've come to that time when I want to remind you that the program was support, produced with support from Cooperative Extension and the Hancock County Extension Association. With offices in each county, Cooperative Extension is the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine. Our radio collaboration with WERU began in 1990 and continues with your support. Join us from 10 to 11 on the second and fourth Friday mornings of each month for Talk of the Towns. Our theme music is a medley from Coronac on a Balmain House Highland music recording. Thanks to our guests, uh, once again, Gray Cox and Don Cass, both professors at College Atlantic, and students Steve Wagner and Nick Harris. Thanks to those of you who listened and called in. Thanks to our underwriters. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program, and stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning and asking that you support us during next week's Pledge Drive. Support for Talk of the Towns comes from Coastal Drilling and Blasting Incorporated.